0: Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for another cram session. In these special releases, we have aggregated the takeaways and tips from previous episodes. If you'd like a focused refresher on previous topics covered, stay tuned for this cram session. In the next segment, we have the takeaways and tips from the episode, Underserved Startup Ecosystems with Stuart Larkins and Ezra Golson. Great follow-up to the discussion on underserved ecosystems in part two. Let's recap the key takeaways. Number one is called the key ingredients of the ecosystem. Stuart and Ezra talked about the main ingredients that are necessary in every ecosystem. They cited capital, mentorship, community, and finally time. As Ezra mentioned, many emerging ecosystems are less than a decade old with any sort of formality. Time is required for startups to mature, for operational capabilities to develop, and for the marketing flywheel of successes to start driving more successes. Key takeaway number two is the advantages of underserved ecosystems. Just because all these ecosystems are in the development phase doesn't mean they don't have advantages over larger ecosystems. The guys cited a few of those on the show today. The first is that VCs like Chicago Ventures must really work on behalf of their portfolio companies to help them build customers, develop partnerships, and raise follow-on capital. Stewart also mentioned that it's less about competition and more about coopetition between funds. This engenders a collaborative atmosphere within the startup ecosystem. The next point here you may see as an advantage or disadvantage, but clearly there's a difference in fund thesis between underserved versus well-served ecosystems. And in these emerging areas, VCs can be more generalist and opportunistic, whereas in well-served capital markets, there needs to be more laser focus and differentiation. And the final advantage that the guys talked about is that there's less of a reactionary response to a variety of funding sources. So a startup may be able to raise capital from different types of sources before, after, or alongside VC capital. In an established ecosystem, this may raise a red flag and companies may suffer some signaling risk. In developing ecosystems, it's much more common and acceptable. Okay, key takeaway number three is called the disadvantages of underserved ecosystems. The first point is related to Fred Wilson's opinion, which is that there's a need for coastal VCs to come in and lead at the A round or later. Stewart affirmed the single biggest weakness of underserved ecosystems, which was follow-on capital. The second disadvantage here is that there are identity issues early on in an ecosystem's development where there are limited success stories. For better or for worse, prior successes in a geography tend to drive the identity of the ecosystem. A tech mafia, so to speak, may exist in nearly every city, and those founders know how to support similar businesses better than others. Ezra mentioned the exact target mafia in Indy, which is an overall positive for the city, but also may cause investors to look only for startups that are similar. And the final point here on disadvantages is that in an emerging ecosystem with less success stories, there are a lower number of successful founders becoming advisors and mentors. Clearly, the community takes time to develop, and those early entrepreneurs will not get nearly the support and guidance of those that come later. And the fourth and final takeaway that I wanted to capture is on suggestions for those in emerging ecosystems. A suggestion from Ezra for investors is that if you're entering a new ecosystem, you must be active. You must make investments. You must connect with other early stage investors located there. And last but not least, have a regular presence in the region. And finally, a suggestion from Stewart for entrepreneurs. He strongly urged early founders to find a mentor, especially one with domain expertise in the target market. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. This week's tip is called the ecosystem network effect. We often talk about startups that are leveraging network effects. Some investors like Union Square Ventures have built some of the most successful firms with a network effect thesis. For those that are new to the concept, a simple way of thinking about network effects is that the value for all users of a product increases as more use the product. In the past, I've written about data as a network effect. And how companies like Google and even Netflix are ever expanding their lead beyond competitors due to their superior data. And network effects are so prized because they create barriers to entry, making it difficult for competitors to enter. They also create barriers to exit, making it challenging for customers to leave. And they drive more value for all constituents as they grow. Both the company and its users extract more value and receive greater benefit as the number of users increase. And this all contributes to the creation of monopolistic, winner-take-all businesses. And during today's discussion, I couldn't help but think of network effects in the context of a startup ecosystem. Imagine for a second a large web. There are many nodes in this web that connect these points to each other. And let's pretend that each of these nodes represents a major stakeholder group in the startup ecosystem, for example, startups, VC firms, angels, incubators, service providers, etc. One of the key questions when discussing the network effect is, at what point are there sufficient number of participants so that each added participant creates more value for all? This is the critical mass question. In an ecosystem's infancy, if there are only a handful of people thinking about startups, there's just not enough volume to justify the existence of key nodes. As I consider this visual, a few things become clear. The number and quality of nodes is critical. The number and quality of connections between those nodes is critical. And finally, the rate at which these nodes and connections are increasing is critical. There are companies here in the Chicago ecosystem that are working on this specifically. Startups like Built in Chicago that are creating the online connectivity, and hubs like 1871 connecting various nodes offline. But in this broad distributed network, what is the key value driver? What is the tip of the spear? While so much is required for a thriving, healthy ecosystem, I do not consider this a chicken or egg problem. Is it capital? Governments? Universities? Mentors? From my standpoint, they're all important and they all play a role. But every great ecosystem starts with visionary founders building tremendous value. The startup is the keystone of the ecosystem. And as I consider this, the single most important question that comes to mind is, if every new startup that's founded increases the value for all in the ecosystem, how do we encourage more exceptional startups to be created? If you're looking for a way to accelerate your own ecosystem, this may be a good place to start. In the next segment, we have the takeaways from reinventing venture capital with Bryce Roberts. It was a big thrill to have Bryce on the program. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called the role of seed capital. When Bryce first launched O'Reilly Alphatech 10 years ago, he asked himself, what is the objective of seed investing? Should it just be a bridge between angels and Series A investors? Or should it create optionality, where the capital can afford different types of options to the founders? Those options, as he described them, were number one, the traditional path, which is to get momentum, hit the milestones, and then raise a subsequent round from traditional VCs. Option two was to build something of value quickly and take advantage of early acquisitions from strategics. And number 3 was the ability to continue running the company as long as the founder would like if it achieves healthy profitability. However, what Bryce found is that instead of creating optionality, seed capital actually got startups hooked on this perpetual capital raising path, which reduced instead of increased optionality. Key takeaway number 2 is called the profile for companies that are a good fit for indie VC. Number one, they look for revenue. Startups with growing monthly revenues, at least 10 to 20K, and even better at 50K or greater. Companies that, when they bring in cash, they know where to invest it to grow. The second factor that makes companies a good fit for indie are companies that are operating in sectors that can be cash efficient, but not necessarily sectors that require winner take all businesses. And finally, the third factor they're looking for are primarily software businesses that are tech or tech enabled. Okay, let's move on to key takeaway number three, which is VC's new terms and structure. The standard convertible note anticipates another round of funding. And due to this, they have interest rates, maturity dates, discounts, and triggers. Indie, on the other hand, came up with a note that is indefinite. It does not convert as the traditional convertible note does. There are three main features to Indy VC's investment terms. Number one is that if the founders choose to sell the company, then Indy converts to common stock at a previously agreed upon percentage. Number two is that if the founders ever do a fundraising round, then Indy converts to preferred stock at a previously agreed upon percentage. And finally, number three, which is the most involved of the investment terms, has to do with cash payouts. So cash distributions that a founder decides to make will be split between the company's employees and Indie VC until a return multiple is reached. The way that this works is that a industry standard rate salary is agreed upon up front at the time that Indy invests. Then if the founder ever decides to take more than 150% of that salary, it will be considered a cash distribution and Indy participates in cash distributions. They will take 80% of all profit distributions made to the founding team and employees until they've recouped 2x of their original investment. And thereafter, they'll take 20% of profit distributions up to a 5x return on investment. And finally, if the startup hits that 5x distribution within the first four years, Indy will cut their equity option in half. Fortunately, Bryce walked us through a hypothetical example. In this example, Indy VC invests, let's say, $500,000 in a business. They agree that Indy receives 10% in the event of a sale or a subsequent fundraise. They also agree that an industry standard salary for the CEO is $100,000. Now, a few years later, the founders want to bonus out a million dollars to themselves and employees. IndyVC will receive 80% of that $1 million profit distribution, which is $800K for Indy and $200K for the employees. And they will continue receiving this 80-20 split until 2X of the original investment is recouped. In this case, the original investment was $500,000. So once Indy receives a $1 million return, then the percentage flips to a 20-80 split. A future profit distribution of $1 million would result in 200K to Indy VC and 800K to employees. And remember, once Indy has recouped 5X of the original investment, there are no more distributions to Indy VC. So in this case, once 2.5 million is returned to Indy, 100% of future profit distributions will go to founders and employees. And the last feature in this example is that if a 5X return is achieved in the first four years, then the equity option is cut in half. So assuming this business returns 5X or 2.5 million to Indie in year three, their equity option in the event of a fundraise or a sale drops from 10% to 5%. Okay, with that, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called the best kind of pivot. In today's interview, we talked about entrepreneurs that prefer to retain more control and either avoid or delay the perpetual VC fundraising cycle. We also talked about startups that are not fundable in the eyes of traditional VC. Maybe because they're in the wrong sector, have the wrong founding team, or the product just isn't remarkable enough. There are many reasons why VCs pass on startups. Most do not want to invest in a business that requires significant changes, In many previous episodes, we have discussed pivots. Charlie O'Donnell said that he would not invest in a company that he believed required a pivot. Charles Hudson said that he's completely comfortable with pivots and significant product changes, assuming the team is addressing a problem in an attractive market. I think we can all agree that pivots aren't ideal. But what about startups that are a pivot away from great success? In the pre-seed and seed stages many of the best opportunities are hidden from view. Sometimes they are overlooked because of an obvious flaw. The real challenge for many early stage investors is knowing which flaws are correctable and which are fatal. Personally, if a founder is building the wrong product, I pass. If I believe the team is incapable of realizing their mission, I pass. If the startup is entering a terrible market, I pass. But there is one area that sends most investors running, and yet I hunt for it actively. Last year, we invested in a company called Cybrary. We co-led the seed round for this startup with Justin Label of Interloop Capital and chatted about the decision to invest on an episode of Why I Invested. And Cybrary has gone on to raise a subsequent institutional seed round at a healthy markup from high-quality VCs, including lead investor Ryan Cruzenga and the team at Arthur Ventures. Quick shout out to Ryan Corey and Ralph Sita. Keep up the good work, guys. But the reason I bring up Cyberary today is not for what they did right early on, but rather what they did wrong. Cyberary had built the online network for cybersecurity professionals to communicate and learn. They had grown their user base faster than any startup I had ever encountered. The engagement of their user base was remarkable. At the time we invested, I believe the average time a user spent per visit exceeded 30 minutes. And they had revenue to boot. While many online networks discouraged monetization during the growth hacking phase, the founders had figured out a way to accelerate user growth and revenue in parallel. But one by one, the large investors fled. I made introductions and they did not yield investment. So out of curiosity... I picked up the phone and asked each VC for their reason for passing. And the answer I received was universal. The site looks like it was built in the 90s. It's ugly, hard to use, cluttered, and does not reflect a production quality product. And the reality was, they were right. The site was not pretty. It was not designed for the eyes of the regular consumer. Yet despite this fact, Cyberary was not just excelling, they were thriving. It was at this point that I realized that some products have such tremendous value that poor design does not inhibit their success. But there are so many developers and designers in the investment community that a lack of a polished front end is very off-putting. Many investors see bad design as a major weakness, but therein I saw an opportunity. If the users were growing so fast and had such high engagement with the current design, imagine the potential with great design. Look, there's a reason to say no to every startup, but the best investors find opportunity where others don't see it. They find a reason to say yes. So what's the best kind of pivot? Is it product, market, or business model? From my standpoint, it's the design pivot, where businesses are thriving in spite of themselves. Some call them ugly ducklings, others black swans. I just think of them as great opportunities. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. to learn more. In the next segment, we have the takeaways and tip from developer platform investing with Ethan Kurzweil. Really fun discussion there for me with Ethan. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called the two main types of developer platforms. The first type empowers the developer, companies that sell to the developer or technical person. And they may be directly calling an API, installing an SDK, or coding to some particular spec. Example businesses here included Xamarin and Twilio. And the second type empowers the non-developer with developer capabilities. These are companies that allow businesses to be much more efficient because they remove the need for significant development in developer-centric areas. So maybe your standard knowledge worker, who is not a developer, can implement tools and complete tasks that previously would have required code. Analytics tools, application monitoring tools, team effectiveness tools, and communication tools. This all allows development to be democratized because many more people can access the functionality that previously would have only been possible with code. Example businesses here included Intercom, Atlassian, New Relic, and Optimizely. Okay, key takeaway number two is called why invest in developer platforms. Recall that Ethan said that traditionally, developer platforms were not considered a good place to invest mostly due to the fact that many developer-centric businesses were early-stage startup companies, which are not really the best target customers. The best customers are the enterprise. But now this area has become very attractive for investment because developers are running more companies, developers are becoming more influential. The investment thesis on Twilio revealed a much larger thesis on the opportunity for these types of platforms. These are tools that make money like the enterprise, but can be marketed like a consumer startup. The cost of customer acquisition can be very low, with a really low hurdle to adoption. There's a need here for marketing and not sales, and social can be a major accelerant to that. The target applications can have real big dollars behind them. These are big-ticket items on an enterprise's budget. The adoption model can be very self-service. An independent developer can sign up and submit payments, And this can allow companies to get very large scale without the need for a sales interaction. Also, on this bottoms-up adoption model, this allows a critical mass of users to adopt and begin integrating the service into more things that they do, which may ultimately warrant a purchase at the enterprise level. There's also organic and viral adoption in this area. There's tremendous net negative churn. There's a very strong business model. And finally, developer customers are empowered to pick their own tools. There are no committee sales decisions. Okay, the third and final takeaway, of course, is the eight commandments of building great developer-focused businesses. The first commandment is a metered service. Is the product or service delivered in a way that can be measured? Number two is revenue growth with usage growth. This is both a pricing and product question. So can the usage increase as the business grows? in a way that can be further monetized. This results in net negative churn where the revenue per customer grows over time. Number three is, does it replace an existing paid service? Is the new product addressing something that the enterprise already spends money against? Ethan cited areas including communication, security, authentication, and payments that currently occupy a line item on the customer's budget. This fact confirms that the startup is addressing a real problem that currently exists. And it also helps with a major sales objection, which is the introduction of incremental spend. Is it easier to convince a customer to reallocate an existing cost to a much better provider or to add a whole new cost to address an issue which may not exist? Commandment number four is does it offer an amazing developer experience? Just as important as UX is in consumer products, How elegant and pleasant is the experience for developers adopting the product? Clearly, if it's a delightful experience, developers will promote it, share it with others, and continue using it regularly themselves. Commandment number five is developers love it. Related to commandment four, here Ethan is looking for signs that this makes a developer's life and work significantly better. It improves their workflow so much that the net promoter score and social media sentiment reflects intense developer appreciation. Number six is, does it exhibit strong network effects? As more people use the product, it becomes more valuable. Number seven is, does it eliminate a non-core skill set that no one enjoys? Things like authentication or spinning up servers are necessary evils, but they're not differentiators for many businesses. By removing the busy work for many developers, they can be much more efficient and will be very attracted to any offering that can help them achieve this. And finally, commandment number eight is, does it democratize development? Again, does this give non-devs dev-like functionality? Okay, and with that, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called thematic-driven theses and accessing idle supply. In today's discussion, we did a deep dive on developer platforms and the key elements that separate the best from the rest. And I couldn't help but see some parallels between Ethan's framework and the theses we invest along at Newstack Ventures. Of our three thematic thesis areas, two of them are directly related to Ethan's commandments. One of these items we refer to as tractable or automation, which gives anyone the ability to complete something that previously could only be done by a scientist, engineer, or skilled professional. The other related thesis area we call democratization, a term that Ethan didn't love but uses as well. In our case, we define this as businesses that are creating a platform or community where users are creating and driving the value. And as more users join, more value is created for all. As I reflected on the takeaways from the discussion with Ethan and the themes that I look for in startups, I realized that his eight commandments are principles that transcend even developer platforms. These characteristics apply and can drive value for startups in every category. Setting aside developer platforms for a moment, Let's take a look again at the commandments, and I'll use a consumer startup, Uber, as an example. Number one, is the product or service delivered in a way that can be measured? Clearly with Uber, converted customers can be measured and their usage can be tracked at a very discreet level. Number two, can the startup's revenue increase as the customer increases use? Yes. In the case of Uber, the more one uses it, the more money Uber makes. are highly incented to create a positive customer experience and encourage greater engagement over time. Number three, does this replace an existing service that the customer already spends money on? Yes, many people spend money on point-to-point transportation, most often in the form of taxis. But even broader than that, Uber is causing some millennials to forego car ownership, a significant line item in the budget of most consumers. Number four, is the user experience amazing? I've heard differing viewpoints on this. Some people hate Uber, others love it. And as I had hoped, as I wrote in an article last year, Uber has now created a number of different tiers, i.e., Select, Excel, etc., that appeal to consumers with different service needs. The stats say usage per user continues to increase, which indicates that the experience is a net positive. Number five is, do customers love and promote the product or service? Whether you love it or hate it, I think the love for Uber bears out in the numbers. The growth per user and new user growth is off the charts, which indicates significant virality and net promotion. Number six, are there strong network effects? Well, as more people use Uber, does it become more valuable for all? I don't think I need to explain this one. It's clear that the more users that request rides, the more drivers are required. And as more drivers join, users in well-served areas will get drivers faster, and users in underserved areas will get drivers where they weren't able to previously. Number seven is, does the service eliminate something that no one enjoys? I think it's a safe bet to say that most folks enjoy arriving at their destination, but they do not like the process of figuring out how to get there. A service that significantly reduces the complexity of transit planning delivers on this commandment. And finally, number eight, does it democratize something complex, allowing non-experts to execute expert tasks? To me, it seems Uber accomplishes this in two ways. On the consumer side, it allows any layperson to move from one point to another in a frictionless way without learning a new skill. On the driver side, it allows almost anyone to become a personal driver, whereas previously, only certified medallioned taxi drivers could perform this task. As I review these commandments and their application to a consumer startup, I can see why companies like Uber have become so successful. And there is a key characteristic of Uber that is not captured in these commandments. If I were to be so bold as to add my own commandment to the list, I would add something that I like to call accessing idle supply. Taking a sidebar for a second, a couple of years ago, I fell in love with a TV show on AMC called Halt and Catch Fire. It's a show set in the mid-80s that follows a group of entrepreneurs in Dallas during the personal computing boom. They developed their own personal computer within the confines of a large, slow-moving company called Cardiff Electric. And I hear this fictional story is largely based on the real story of Compaq. Part of the reason I like the show so much was because the team of characters and the issues they encounter present an incredibly accurate reflection of the startup world. The other reason I enjoy it so much is because the situations are very similar to my own challenging experience as a product developer, building something disruptive and different within a large corporation. It's amazing how technology can change so much in two decades, but people and challenges remain the same. The reason I bring up the show now is because the lead character, Joe McMillan, discovers an enormous opportunity. He realizes that his company is using their servers only during the day. And if he could sell their server downtime to others, they'd be able to create an entirely new revenue stream. This is a perfect example of what I'm calling idle supply. There's an asset with tremendous value that does not operate at 100% utilization. And if one can determine a way for folks in demand for that asset to be able to use it, everybody wins. So back to present day. Many have said that the success of Uber and also Airbnb came from their ability to capitalize on the macro trends of on-demand and the sharing economy. And while that may be accurate, I think that they've become some of the most valuable private companies in existence for a different reason. Their adoption and engagement exploded because they addressed real demand while accessing idle supply. Idle supply can come in different forms. It could be a person's time, i.e. Instacart. It could be an asset that is utilized less than 100% of the time, i.e. Airbnb, or it could be a combination of the two, i.e. Uber. Think of all the valuable assets you own, aside from your home, that you don't use 100% of the time. While your toothbrush is probably the worst example of something that would be lent during idle time, what if it were easy, safe, and frictionless to make some of your most expensive assets available for compensation? Things like your vehicle, your parking spot, or even your laptop's computing power. So, to wrap things up, today I challenge you to leverage Ethan's framework for any startup. How many of the commandments do they fulfill? Which of the commandments apply? And finally, are they leveraging high value, idle supply? While these characteristics don't make for startup success, they can be the difference between a modest versus an outsized exit. That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content, episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time.